You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Hey, my name is John Whitaker, and I am a friend of Josh and Andrew and Jake here at Hill City. And uh, last week, we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, uh, 15 and following. This week, we're going to be in probably one of the most well-known passages in the book of Ephesians. And that passage is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And we're going to walk down through this and look at really who we were and what has happened to us here in Ephesians. And... Um, <clears throat> Just to set this up, the reality is all of us have some sort of origin story, like where we came from and who we were. And I look back at my life, and I grew up in Tacoma, Washington, and uh, I was, by all accounts, a good kid, right? Like I, I was a, a good moral kid, usually did what was right. I, you know, went to school and did my homework and got decent grades, and my teachers liked me, my, my mom, you know, I grew up with just a mom, not a dad at home, but my mom liked me, my grandparents liked me. I was a good kid, and everyone thought I was a good kid, and, and, and yet, at the same time, I had a violent temper. Uh, I was introduced to pornography at a fairly early age, and that became a problem for me. Um, I, I went to Sunday school, but I hardly ever prayed on my own, certainly didn't read my Bible as a, a kid, and I don't even hardly ever remember the times I prayed. And when I did pray, it was usually for selfish reasons, something along the lines of, uh, you know, Grandpa and I want to go fishing, and it's western Washington, so the weather's unpredictable, so don't let it rain so I can go fishing with my grandpa tomorrow, right? That was kind of the extent of my praying as a kid. So uh, while I was a good kid and I did good things, I had I had this violent temper, and I got you know, trapped by porn, and... I didn't ever pray, and I tended to think I was better than other kids who were mean and who were jerks. And, and all of us have some sort of origin story where we came from, and whether it's religious or not, whether it's uh, moral or immoral, um, whether it's uh, knowing about God or not knowing about God at all, we all have some sort of origin story, some sort of background, and What Paul is going to say here in Ephesians chapter 2, he's going to begin this section by kind of laying a theological filter over our origin story to help us see where we came from and what God did and to see how incredible and amazing all of that really is. This is what he says here in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2. He says, And you were dead in your offenses and your sins. Notice that you were dead in your offenses and your sins, in which you previously walked according to the course of this world. That's really, uh, that phrase, course of this world, is almost parallel to the English phrase, the spirit of the age. It's sort of that idea, the, the way the world has gone about things, the, the spirit of the age, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What Paul is saying is, you, you were dead. Not just, you know, oh yeah, I kind of had a rough background, but if I lay Paul's theological filter over my origin story, I was dead 
in my offenses and sins, that I was living according to just the ways of this world. He even says, according to the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air refers to Satan himself. Like he's the one that's in charge of this world and he rules the spirit of the age and he influences that, uh, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, those who are marked by and characterized disobedience. He, he continues in verse 3 and says, Among them we too all previously lived in the lust of our flesh. And I just have to highlight the contrast. Verse 1, you were dead. And among them we, notice the contrast, you, we. Who's the you and who's the we? It's not explicit here. It's implied. It becomes explicit in chapter 2, verse 11, that the you is you Gentiles, you non-Jews. And the we, we too, are Jews. Like, Uh, Jewish believers, uh, those who were outside of Christ but were Jews. So he's saying, you Gentiles were dead and we Jews too. We all previously lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath just as the rest. And so Paul is saying, it's not just you Gentiles who had a problem. We Jews, even though we had the scriptures, even though we were religious, even though we were taught God's way, we too had a problem. We too previously lived according to the lusts of the flesh. That's the desires of the flesh in Paul's writings is fallen humanity. Um, our, our, our fallen desires, our fallen way of life, the weakness of our Humanity, particularly humanity in its fallenness, indulging, he says, the desires of the flesh, the fallen culture around us, the fallen ways of mankind and of the mind. He even says, we were by nature children of wrath. When you hear that phrase, children of wrath, know it stands in parallel to sons of disobedience in verse 2. He's not talking about little kids. He's talking about those who are marked by disobedience, those who are destined for wrath. He's saying, we, we Jews tended to think we were better than you Gentiles because we were religious and knew God's word. But we had the same sort of problem. Like we, we were sinful as well, just as the rest of mankind. Um, and so here in verses one through three, Paul lays this theological filter over your origin story, my origin story, and says, here's the reality is we were dead. We were following the way of a, a broken, fallen world. We were We were marked by disobedience to God. We were in that category of disobedience. We were under God's wrath. All of us were. It doesn't matter whether we're religious or irreligious. It doesn't matter whether we were moral or immoral. It doesn't matter whether we grew up with the Bible or never read the Bible until just now, right? Like, it doesn't matter. All of us, by virtue of our uh, fallen way of life, our disobedience to God, going our own path, all of us, he says, were dead and destined for God's wrath. I, I often think of this in terms of a plant, a flower. Like if I take this geranium and I, I rip it out of the soil, um, is, this, is this geranium alive or dead? Well, the reality is it's sort of in a state of living death, right? Like if, if something doesn't happen to this geranium with its roots just dangling here, right? It's, it's destined to die. It's on a path with death unless something happens to this plant. And that imagery really is what Paul is saying here is that all of us, before, we, before Jesus came and before we came to Jesus, all of us were in a state of living death. Uh, 
We, we had been ripped out of our, the, the soil that was appropriate for us to have life, the soil of God himself. Like By virtue of our disobedience to God and our rebellion against him and going the way of this world, we, we were severed from the life of God himself. Paul actually used that phrase in Ephesians chapter 4. And as a result of being ripped out of the soil of God, that's that's the soil we need for life. And so we were in a state of living death. And death really is an appropriate description of the life of sin. Like sin, sin causes all sorts of deaths, big deaths and little deaths, right? Like think of the death of friendships because of sin, I think of a friend by the name of Kurt Rosencrantz. He and I grew up together in Tacoma. Um, I was at his house all the time. I was always riding my bike over to his house. He lived just a few blocks away. We were always together. And then there was one particular day. We were around 12 or 13 years old. Uh, I don't even remember what happened uh, and what caused it. I just know we got into a big argument, a big fight. Literally, I've never talked to Kurt since. We got into a fight over our own selfish desires of some sort, and a childhood friend and I have never talked since. I don't even know where he's at. Um, Sad, but sin does that. It kills things. It causes death. Think of the death of a marriage, the death of relationships with your kids because of sin, right? Like, think of the death of a relationship between siblings because of selfishness and sin, Um, like sin causes all sorts of death. And so when Paul says you were dead, it's an appropriate image for the state that our life began in outside of Christ before um, our own connection with Jesus. We were dead. We weren't just, oh man, I could have, I could have been a better person. It wasn't just that, oh yeah, we were a little immoral or we did a few bad things. Paul says we were dead. We were like this plant and if something didn't happen, death was the certain end for us. We were on our way and, uh, to death and we were in a state of living death. But here's what happened. Uh, verse 4, but God, but God, in the midst of of our desperate situation, in the midst of our spiritual death, but God, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Just sit with that verse for a second. God who is rich in mercy. Mercy is compassion. Mercy takes pity on Someone who needs help. Mercy is this drive to say, man, they, they desperately need some help. God who is rich in that kind of mercy. He doesn't just have a little bit. He, he's rich in it. He's got a treasure trove of mercy. Notice because of his great love. Like God's got, he's rich in mercy. He's got incredibly great love. God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Like, he doesn't just have love in general. He loved us. He actively did something. He loved us to such a degree that he was moved to help. God loved you. So God, 
In the midst of our state of living death, God intervened and God did something about our desperate situation. What did he do? Well, look at verse 5. Even when we were dead. So in this state of us being dead, God still loved us. God still had mercy for us. Even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, God, here's what he did. God made us alive. We were dead and God made us alive. God made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul will come back to that theme here in verse eight. So we'll hold off on it. But it's like he just can't help himself. He's so overwhelmed by what God did. He has to blurt out in the the middle of the sentence his thought. By grace, you have been saved. God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you, do you see what God did? Like our situation was desperate. We were dead. We were destined for wrath. We uh, were in a situation we had no hope to solve on our own. And God intervened. And notice, God made us alive, raised us up, and seated us with Christ. Now, if you, if you watched last week's message, then you know that right at the end of chapter 1, Paul used those same descriptions for what God did for Jesus. That uh, he was describing God's surpassingly great power at the end of chapter one. And he said that uh, that power is the same kind of power that God displayed when he raised Jesus up and seated him in the heavenly places. Well, notice what it says here that God did for us. If, if you are in Jesus, God did the same thing for you. He raised you up just like he raised Jesus up and he seated you with Jesus in the heavenly places. In other words, You've experienced phase one of your resurrection. Yeah, we're awaiting phase two, the resurrection of the body at the end of time. But here in the present, we've already experienced phase one of our resurrection. We were dead and God resurrected us to new spiritual life. How did that happen? Well, it was as if God took us like in this desperate state and he he replanted us and reconnected us to the soil of his presence and to the soil of his power and to the soil of his life and now life began to flow into us again and we were made alive we who were dead in, in our sins and trespasses were now reconnected and replanted to God himself and all of a sudden God's life began to flow back through our, our, our spirit and our soul and our mind and our heart and we came back alive and so in a very real sense you and I who are in Christ are alive for the first time. And if you're not in Christ and you just happen to be watching this video, then the reality is you can have that experience, too. If you're not in Christ, then Paul would say you're in this state of living death. And maybe you feel that. Maybe you you in some way have experienced that. Well, all you have to do is put your faith in Jesus and God will make you alive again. God will give you real, true life, the kind of life you were made for. He'll connect you to his life, eternal life life, heavenly life, and you'll be made alive again. That's what happened when we entered Jesus. When we came into Christ, we went from death to life. Like conversion isn't just, um, 
you know, adding some religious activities to our life. Conversion isn't just going from being unchurched to church, from being irreligious to religious, or even just being kind of religious to having a relationship with God. It's those things, but those things aren't the really big deal. The big deal is we went from being dead to being alive. That's what happened when we came to faith in Jesus. And what drove all that? What motivated all that? Well, Paul said in verse 4, his, his, his mercy, his great love. He says at the end of this in verse 7, because he wants to show off the boundless riches of his grace. So like forevermore in the ages to come, we who, who put our faith in Jesus, we get to be the showcase of God's mercy, love. And grace. We, we get to be exhibit A of how incredibly merciful and kind and gracious is the, the living God. Look what he did. He took dead people and he made them alive and made them his own people again. That's what happened when we entered into Jesus. And so at this point in this, in this little section, Paul then just is like, so let's just talk about this grace for a moment. God wants to display his grace in kindness towards us, well, verse 8, because it's by grace you've been saved. Like all of this, God, God moving you from death to life, that's an expression of his grace. It's something you couldn't do for yourself. It's something I couldn't do for myself. It's something we desperately needed to be done for us. And God did it because of his mercy, love, and grace. For by grace... You have been saved. And grace is one of those big Bible words that big theological words that we hear a lot in the church. And we just need to make sure we we don't over, you know, religify it. Right. Like it's not just a religious word. Grace really just means like it is an expression of love that does something for somebody that they don't deserve done for them. Like God's grace means that God gave us his favor and his kindness, even though we didn't deserve it. That's grace. Grace, like by grace you have been saved. You didn't deserve it. You, you couldn't earn it. You couldn't do it yourself. So God did it for you. And he gave you life out of death simply because of his favor and his kindness towards you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Um, that this grace saved us simply by faith. And faith, again, is one of those religious words that simply means confidence and trust and loyalty. That's the idea. You simply placed your confidence in what God did in Jesus. You, you uh, placed your confidence in Jesus himself. And as a result, God gave you salvation. He rescued you from the state of living death. He reconnected you to his own presence and life began to pour into you. That's that salvation you've been given simply by putting your confidence and your trust in Jesus. And so he says, this isn't of yourself. And just to clarify, when he says this, sometimes people have misread that and thought faith wasn't of yourself. It's the gift of God, but it's not faith that's being referred to by this. In fact, grammatically, it can't be faith. It's just the way the Greek language works. Uh, This refers to salvation. This salvation is a gift of God. It's not something that you, you earned. It's just a gift. It's just a gift of God. It's not the result of works so that no one may boast. Like, Salvation is simply offered to you as a gift. You don't have to 
earn it. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to buy it. It's just a gift. It's a gift. Um, And all of us go about life in the present time, and we all have our various experiences of performance, don't we? Like being rewarded for our performance of things, whether it's uh, grades in school, um, right? You, 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 get, you, you, you do the work, you study hard, you get, you get the A, right? You get enough A's, you get the scholarship, right? You, you know, even in elementary school, you know, they've got their chart and they put their little gold star on it for all the good things you did in class and how you treated your classmates and how well you did in your math quizzes or whatever it is, right? We're all used to that. Or maybe it's in sports, right? You win the game, you get the trophy, you get the prize. I was coaching uh, some little U10 girls soccer players a, a few years ago. And when we started the season, these girls had been poorly coached prior to my arrival and so they were really remedial in their skills and I'm like oh man this this is going to be a a work in process and so we started working we started working with the girls and we went clear back to you know six-year-old fundamentals because they barely knew how to trap a ball properly and kick a ball properly so we just started working really hard on the fundamentals uh, and as we worked on that, they got better, they got better. They started winning games, they started winning games. And then, lo and behold, we get to the end of the season tournament and we, we won our first game, we tied our second game, we won our third game. The next thing you know, we're in the championship game at the end of the season tournament. And I'm like, these girls have come so far. And so we're in the championship game um, and we ended up losing. We lost three to one in the championship game against a team that had more talent and more experience than we did. And so we lost three to one. And as the game came to an end, our girls came off the field and they were starting to cry because of the experience of performance. We didn't do enough. We didn't measure up. We didn't win, right? Um, We've all had this kind of experience where the disappointment of not doing enough and not measuring up. So the girls are starting to cry. And I stopped them. I said, hold, 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 hold on. Stop. No tears. When we first started the season four months ago, did you even expect to play in this game? Nope. Did you ever hope to to get this far? Nope. And guess what? We didn't win this game, but we still get to go up to the awards tent and you guys get second place medal. Well, at that point, they were all excited, right? They're going to still get a medal. They're still going to, you know, get get an award. And that was really all they cared about. And we've all had that experience of uh, getting rewarded for a good performance. That's typical of the life that we experience in this world. It's part of the way God hardwired the universe to work. The problem is, is salvation couldn't be that way. Salvation could never be a reward for doing enough. Why? Because dead people can't make themselves alive again. Salvation could never be a reward uh, for being good enough because dead people simply can't reattach themselves to the soil of God and make themselves alive again. And so salvation isn't a reward to good people. Salvation is life for dead people. And it's given as a gift. It's given as a sheer gift. It's not a trophy. It's a present. That's what salvation is. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of works. So there's no place for us to boast. We don't have to be proud. We don't have to be arrogant. We don't have to have a superiority complex towards our fellow believers, towards those outside of Christ. 
There's no place for boasting. There's only gratitude and humility because it's a gift. It's a gift. And so Paul says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. We're his new creation. We're his craftsmanship. He formed us individually as followers of him, but also collectively as Hill City Church, right? Like we're his workmanship. He made us alive. He's the one who's knitting us together. He's the one who's forming us. He has created us and made us new. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so it's not that good works have no place to play, but they're the result. They're the after effect, right? Like God took dead people, made them alive, and now they can live out the new life They've been given. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Um, this text, this text, if you notice carefully, is not so much a doing text. There's, there's no imperative. There's no command anywhere in this text. This is a descriptive text. It describes who we were, how God intervened, and as a result, who God made us so that we now have been given new life and we can live that new kind of life. In fact, in the first three chapters of Ephesians in total, there's only one command ever. It'll actually show up in the very next verse, verse 11. And it's the command to remember. Remember where you came from. Remember who you were. That's the only command in the first three chapters because the first three chapters of Ephesians is trying to paint this grand, glorious picture of what it means to be in Christ and what it means to be the people of God. And here, in the center of all of that, we have this description. What does it mean to be the people of God? It means to be given life as a gift from God because of his great love for us. And so here's, here's what I would encourage you to do. Since this text has no commands... It's really just descriptive. What I would encourage you to do with this text this week is just to get this text out, maybe three days or four days this week, and just savor it, read it, imagine it. It's like, think back to your own origin story. Maybe even get out a, a pen and paper and write down who you were. Write down some of the expressions of your deadness. I used to have my students do this in one of my classes at the college. I referred to it as an autobiography of sin. Not pleasant, but ooh, so helpful for us. And maybe it would be worthwhile to do that. Just read through this text prayerfully and begin to reflect on where did I come from? What are some of those things that cut me off from the life of God? What are some of those things that were evidence of my deadness in my flesh? And write those down and and then meditate on what God did for you and his great love for you. And just sit in the presence of this God who loved you even in the midst of your death. Savor it. Imagine it. Feel it. Soak in this text until it begins to shape how you see yourself. I was once dead, but now I'm alive. I was once cut off from the life of God, but now I'm connected to God. I'm a new creation in him. I'm his workmanship. I'm created in Jesus to live the way he wants me to live. And I'm going to figure out what that means in partnership with him. Just sit with this text. Savor this text. Imagine this text and let it shape how you view the person you were and the person you are and the person you are becoming. In Christ Jesus.
Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.